Hi, Stably. Good morning, Jerry. How you doing? Doing okay. Doing just fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm, uh, you know, staying in my lane, keeping my head down. <laughs> good. That's that's where you deserve to be. <laughs> yeah. Knowing my place and um, feeling pretty good about it. You know, just like don't worry about things. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Uh, Stably. <laughs> yes. We're here. I'm here. We're here. I'm here. You're here. <clears throat> We're here to discuss your pick. Why, uh, why do you say it like that, Jerry? I didn't say anything. Okay. Obedience, obedience is freedom by Jacob Phillips. Uh, what is this book about, Stably? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's kind of on the tin. It's about obedience. Yeah. Not, I'm not sure it's about freedom, but um, well, I would I would maybe call it obedience and contentment, or is contentment equanimity? But equanimity, that's right. Eudaimonia, that's a good one. Yeah, You're, you've read the book, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, um, you know, it's it's like a right wing countercultural attempt, though not in the way I think most people would assume to spell out why some very, very traditional, I guess you'd call them virtues, mm -hmm. are actually good, actually. Uh, <laughs> and the, I guess, kind of liberal, hedonistic um, lifestyle or system that we have now that has replaced those virtues is bad. But uh, bad, not just for hoity-toity religious reasons, although there is a lot of that, uh, but also they make people unhappy and uneconomic, what's <laughs> whatever the word is, unbalanced, yeah. uh, I, I guess I would say. So um, it is not a, uh, it is not a uh, podcaster um, ghost-written screed or some sort of like a dime store Jordan Peterson type of thing, which is maybe what people would think if they kind of read the and, title, look at the cover. Yeah. And it's not, uh, how did you put it last time? When we talked, you were talking about books that have to cite stats and cite studies and put it all very glibly. It's not one oh, of those airport, either. Yeah. An airport it, book. Yeah. Or, or yeah. It's not like a Jonathan Hyde book either. Oh, does he? Right? I don't know if he does that, does he? He doesn't. I'm saying it's not. It's not, right, okay. it's not a Jordan Peterson book, but it's also not a Jonathan Haidt book that says, you know, all these studies show that, uh, you know, these, this makes you happy and this doesn't. And, right? right. So he is not doing a reverse Steven Pinker. Let's put it that way. Correct. Right? Where Correct. Steven Pinker would come out and God bless, right? Um, a book about, like, I haven't read it, but his book about the Enlightenment. Yeah. Is like a lot of his books now are filled with like graphs and studies and hashtag the science. Exactly. To show that, you know, whatever he wants to show. This is not that. It's a very unusual book, actually. In fact, at the, at the, intro, the introduction to the book, he says, um, you know, you've picked up this book and what you probably expect is, and then he proceeds to outline, like literally, like like a, uh, a, a publisher's outline of the book that I really thought I was getting myself into, which was more of <laughs> yeah. the Pinker kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're kind of expecting a kind of academic, center-right, but still very liberal, yeah. modern man, um, a treatment of whatever, right? A very um, instrumental take on yes. 
on all the, the, the different topics um, in the book, which we can go through. Um, but conveniently, they're also the chapter headings. So, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of, yeah, he does a very good job explaining exactly what you're getting, well, of, of kind of explaining what you're getting into uh, right off the bat. So if you're not interested in something like that, you can just put it down. Um, but that's, I guess that's how I would describe it if I, if I did. How would, do you think I'm correct? Do you think I've missed something? You are, but I think also you, you said what it's not. Um, what it is, it's very, and, and this goes to one of the chapters where he talks about language and how we've, you know, our language has become functionalized and efficient and therefore soul-destroying, culture-destroying. Um, it is a book that tries to be poetic and literary, mm -hmm. Uh, and I and I underscore tries. Mm -hmm. um, we can get to that, but yeah, it's 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 more like um, while every chapter has a point it's making and it's it is argumentation, it's very ruminate ruminating and very personal too, um, and very literary also in that it has literary criticism, right? So mm -hmm. it, you know we find our friends Welbeck and Nausgaard, uh in here. So <laughs> yeah, so it's it's like that, and it, yeah, it's 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 very um, I don't know, um, it's like soft and woolly, and he, yeah, he talks about at one point he talks about uh, tobacco smell and and saffron and oak or something, you know, it's it's, it's that kind of right. Vibe. Yes. Um... So, I mean, uh, oh, wait, I mean, hold on, I found it. Uh, uh, this, is, this is a quote that I that I highlighted for the vibe. He's talking about the docks. Uh, but in the midpoint of these two bleak and soulless extremes lies the rich tapestry of the early 19th century docks with its odors of wood-soaked rum, earthy pipe tobacco, saffron, and rose water, right? Like, uh, its fruitful intersection of interests, its self-governance and clear hierarchies and meshed into a patchwork of properly functioning fecund hole like it's a lot it's a lot of like that's the like i can see him in his study uh very much like what was our friend uh with the um uh the, the classicist the one you gave up on no i like this guy <laughs> okay. we no we both liked him uh we read a very it was your last pick Oh, Anyhow. Uh, Becker, Beckham, Beck something. Yeah. Becker, yeah. Yeah. I can see this guy in a similarly uh, wood paneled library um, writing this in like uh, with a quill pen. With a quill pen. <laughs> yeah. Sure. By candlelight. Yeah. <laughs> coughing blood into a, a handkerchief. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, but okay. So I, I would say, like, despite all that, right, this is not. Um, so he's still a, a young man seemingly um he's a religious scholar i think he might be in charge of some like religious college or something like that or he's a professor of of religion um but he is not like a crusty crusty yeah. old guy um and definitely not in the way he writes like he takes on like modern themes and modern writers as you mentioned um and he's not just somebody that says like don't read anything af published after like a thousand right. ad <laughs> or something like that so um he is uh, trying to be like a, a postmodern conservative uh basically where yep. he's, he doesn't shy away from these things he takes them head on and maybe you know maybe he disagrees or he definitely disagrees with a lot of what's going on in contemporary society but he's not he is not the guy walking around with a bow tie and a briefcase in seventh grade. Um, he's not that guy. Yeah. 
So I guess we've like laid the groundwork. Um, so something else in the in the introduction is um, that he mentions he was going to do, and then he brings it up again towards the very end is uh, synesthesia. Mm -hmm. You remember that? So you know he is trying to associate like the different concepts that are covered in each chapter, like obligation and responsibility and, and duty, all the fun stuff. Um, you know, he's trying to like associate them, which everyone thinks are like they're dour and boring and unpleasant and stuff you kind of want to get away from. And he's trying to like associate it in a synesthetic in a synesthetic way, if that's a word, with other not even necessarily other concepts, but like like you said, like the smells, and the sights and the sounds mm -hmm. uh, of a normal life. So I think that might explain or go some way towards explaining why the book is written the way it is. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, we can start from like the very beginning if you want, but as you said, it's a lot of, it's wooly and there's a lot of circling. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's like a modern book review where he, somebody is writing about, the new book about the Battle of the Bulge, and they spend like three quarters of it just talking about like the weather or, or you know, like how trees grow in Belgium or something. And then they finally get to like the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and that's like considered high literary uh, um, art or something. Um, so there's a lot of that where he, like in the first chapter, it's on what is it, Allegiance. And you think it would be like, I don't know, knights fighting on a battlefield or <laughs> World War II. I don't even know if, if he mentions Churchill in the entire book. You know, he's British, so you would think he'd go here. But he's really, t he, he starts the whole book off basically about like, what are they, anti-nuclear? I mean, they're like anti-nuclear war protesters, protesters. right, in, in England in the early 80s. Um, women protesters, like mothers, who are protesting the the placement of nuclear weapons on some like ancient uh, woodland in the middle of England, you know, like the kind of people that right-wingers would be like, throw them all in prison <laughs> and take right. their kids away. Right. But he's treating them very sympathetically. Uh, it turns out that one of them is his mother. Um, that was very uh, M. Night Shyamalan-Ling. Uh, Ling <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. Because he, he reveals it like in the last sentence of, of the chapter that, right. that the yeah. baby he was talking about was him. It was me all along. It was me all along. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he is trying to associate allegiance, uh, which you don't necessarily always associate with, like, mother, motherhood, right? Parenthood, mm -hmm. motherhood, um, with this other concept, right? So, I and I don't know if that always works or if I'm just, like, too dim. No, to I, I think he's, he stretches... Um, so for you know, so we should say the the chapters are allegiance, loyalty, deference, honor, obligation, respect, responsibility, discipline, duty, and authority. And so he treats each of these in each of the chapters. Um, but I think that he, he sometimes stretches mm -hmm. the the story he tells to kind of like I, I guess he he kind of like I think he wrote these down, and then when he got to whatever you know, uh, duty. He, he, he told a story that I guess is about duty tangentially, but it's about something else really. Right. And I mean, maybe that is the point. Maybe this is like the greatest work of, um, <laughs> <laughs> philosophy, right. Um, 
I don't want to be mean, right? But like, I, I wonder if like, if you, if I were to read it a little bit more closely and like fully, yeah. fully immerse myself in the book, you might, and, you might keep click more. In, and keep in mind that like he is, I mean, maybe if it's true or not, like he is at all times trying to pull off this, this trick or this move of associating something like duty, which in a normal book, quote normal book, right? It would be like the the quote would be from like Churchill or De Gaulle right or shakespeare there would be a quote and some description of something that happened involving probably soldiers right uh, that's how these things usually go or some religious order and then there would be some history and then there would be like some philosophical concepts and you would get like i don't know paul's yeah. you know like something from the bible and he doesn't do any of that like you know he's talking about yeah that's the chapter with Olenbach. <laughs> And Nasgard, right? Like these are the, the last few chapters can be get very like literary. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily like what anyone would associate with the concept of duty. So maybe it's my fault for like not remembering, like, oh, he's doing this thing. That, we all know what synesthesia is, right? Yeah, you're just, yeah. yeah. Let, let's not let's not yeah. um uh insult our listeners. of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> So uh, on the allegiance one, the culture war talking point I took away from this. Uh, <laughs> good, very good. <laughs> which, which you kind of touched on, which is to say, you know, you were saying how you know the, these uh, anti-war, anti-nuke women protesters who basically um, occupied and encamped, you know, this encampment for. I don't know for years apparently like this is it's called greenham Conum, uh, greenham common encampment mm -hmm. and apparently this is something that i, I guess is is <clears throat> uh a well-known part of modern british history that i never heard of um i i think the point is that uh this was for women only and their kids and that it was uh, that being a woman was always understood by the most lefty of lefties um the uh, to be associated with motherhood and responsibility for the young etc right which is i mean the very reason why they were protesting is because they were concerned for their children right mm -hmm. um and he's kind of uh contrast that with modern conceptions where uh, you know modern liberal conceptions where uh, I mean, modern, Jesus, postmodern, I guess, because this was not very too long ago, where, you know, associating uh, womanhood with mother, you know, with, with necessarily with, with children is taboo, right? And he's saying, you know, we, we've broken this, this connection and that's bad, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the, the, the part he plays in it as like a, a baby actually is it's, like you said, he's describing a woman holding her one-year-old and seeing a BBC news report or just like seeing something about what could happen in, in a nuclear war and thinking like, I don't want my, my little one-year-old like turn into a little barbecue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> By nuclear war, I have to do something about this uh, and joins this uh, freedom convoy to, <laughs> to, stop the, to stop the war in Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> so um, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he goes through great lengths to say, like, you can't even imagine. I mean, I guess this was written very recently, came out this last summer. You definitely can't imagine that today. I mean, you could kind of almost imagine people speaking like this into, like, the Bush years, right, with, like, opposing the war in Iraq. You could almost envision a bunch of, or even in uh, the summer of Floyd in 2020, the wall of moms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if I can see it now, right? Because to associate like women with being female, with having children and caring about that at all, other than like, it's, it's like having a pet, right? It's like, I was upset about my baby dying as like a pet dying. I guess that's okay. But well, and <laughs> to make it like the center of their existence, yeah. like that's incredibly, uh, reactionary and unwoke and unprogressive and fas fascistic. Right. Uh, all right. Well, that's allegiance. <laughs> that's allegiance. But he, so he doesn't write, again, he's not writing this like a uh, anti-woke tweet storm. No. Right. He's being very soft, very gentle. You know, he is, you know, for supposedly a right winger, right? He is putting people who are opposed to nuclear weapons. At, yeah. It being placed in England at the height of the Cold War in you know a somewhat not a positive light but a like a human light like <clears throat> well not not to jump around but like the responsibility uh chapter is basically about environmentalism and he points out that the the, the real root of environmentalism is local right that when your home your your home environment you know where you live is going to change that's what spurs you to action it's not thinking globally it's not greta thunberg Right, thinking, you know, the Earth is going to be incinerated. Every, you know, there's going to be billions of deaths like that. You, people can't, like, that's just um, that kind of abstract thinking is just, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's fake. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah. So anyway, like that, that. I think the first chapter is actually a very good sample mm -hmm. of what's to come. Uh, yeah. He's not pulling any punches. It's. It's like you're kind of get, you're getting into the chapter, and it's like okay, nuclear weapons. He's going to talk about like I think maybe he tried to do this on purpose. Like it's a right wing audience. He's going to talk about like placing nukes in England to fight the commies, right? In a chapter called Allegiance. Oh, and here come the dirty hippies, <laughs> stinking up the place. Useful idiots watching left wing media, probably being you know paid off by the commies. And it's like oh no, it's not really about that, is it? It's about like these people were just concerned about their children like right. dying, <laughs> which is an incredibly human, uh, one would think, an incredibly human uh, thing to think about. And that, that's the allegiance that he's focused on, like the, the allegiance of like mother to child. Right. So I thought it was very clever. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if we need to go like chapter by chapter. There are what, nine? No, 10. 10. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't, Think we need to do that. yeah that's okay i mean they're because they're all it's a very hard book to i don't know to i guess we say this about all the books it's a hard book to extract because it is very the language is a little highfalutin and is very like literary um and he's trying for something and it's, it's just hard to kind of go chapter by chapter they don't necessarily they kind of actually flow into each other because mm -hmm. the mom is part of chapter two yeah and then they kind of things kind of move between chapters, but it's not they build on each other, but each yeah. chapter is its own 
self-contained little story. Little, little vignettes yeah. there. Yeah. They're not like super structured. What, anyway. One might say a uh, little sermon. A little, oh my God, Jerry, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're right. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, you, you're, a, you're a lover of music. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of his, uh, which chapters were those again? I so like those. Okay, I figured you would. Yeah. So yeah. I wonder if he's about the same age as you. Yeah, he, he seems a little bit older. Older than you, okay. Yeah, yeah, because he seems to, um, I think he's he, he sounds a little bit older because at my time was very much the Britpop uh, time that he um, describes as coming after the uh, main protagonist uh, house scene in London that he okay. talks about, right? Um, yeah, but I thought that was very cool. And it, it, it totally, you know, threw me back to my adolescence going to record stores. Um, Do our listeners know what a record is, Jerry? Yeah. Well, <laughs> they know what synesthesia is, but not what <laughs> In fairness, I didn't go to record stores. I went to uh, CD stores, right? So I took a, you know, uh, something that was the revelation, which reminded me. So he's talking about, uh, oh, God, do we have to explain this? Um, London kind of house music that was basically when you had um, uh, cheap audio equipment that began to be available to people and they would sample uh, other music and put it together and it was very amateurish but it became like a total scene um, and it was underground because all the sampling was being done illegally um, but it became sort of like this huge cultural um, sort of uh, new musical art form which later uh, which which at first was kind of denigrated by the uh, respectable music critics as you know unlistenable and it was it was very declasse right uh -huh. uh, and then later it was recognized for what it is but the only way that it was made respectable later by the media was by racializing it and saying that this was England's first black um, art form right the U.S. has jazz England now has this. And he's like, well, uh, from his experience around this, um, there was nothing racial about it, right? Like, sure, it was it was kind of like um, more black than white, but like at the time, nobody was thinking about that, right? Um, that was, I mean, it, 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 you know, it, he's, it was basically colorblind, which now you can't say, and they're actually um, taking away something from it by make by racializing it. So that's the 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 the. the culture war talking point out of this chapter. Um, but a big part of how this music was distributed, because again, it was it was played on pirate music stations. You couldn't just go anywhere uh, and, and buy it. You can obviously download it because that didn't exist. So there would be these um, record stores where there would be like a back room. You'd have to know to go there. And um, they would be playing the music. And when you liked the music, and it would be playing at just incredibly loud volume, you would signal to the guy, the attendant, that you wanted this record that was playing. And you would go there for hours, I guess, and listen to music and, you know, um, get a pile of records on your, you know, and, and then you pay and you leave, et cetera. And it became like, a, it, there was like a whole thing about understanding how this worked, being initiated into the, uh, uh, the rules of it, like there was a whole um, scene to it, right? Anyhow, it just reminded me of what was a revelation when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, was um, you could go to a music store that was 
you know, one of the, it was, this was a time that Barnes and Noble was starting, right? So you had these superstores where for the first time you could go and you could be sure that just about any thing that you wanted, like, you know, the, the, at least the, the a good chunk of the long tail was available there. And, yeah. um, and so these music stores, the revelation was they would let you listen to the CD. You could go, um, go to the, you know, the aisles of music, pick out like, you know, five CDs, take them to this part of the store where you'd sit down, put on headphones and an attendant would peel off the plastic shrink wrap, put the CD in a thing that was connected to your headphones. You'd listen to it. We call it a CD player children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <okay>. uh, <laughs> and, um, and and then you could choose to buy it or not. If you didn't buy it, they would re-shrink wrap it and restock it. This Interesting. Is, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah and so, okay. and so a, as a teenager that had no money, nothing to do, we would go and we would spend hours at these things listening to music that we, you know, just try. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. I kind of came, I think a little later by, than by, you. By the way, that, that didn't work out. I don't think yeah. that was very profitable. No, I mean, FYE, FYE and all those, they're still around, right? Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Borders. Uh, yes, I do remember that. Although I think by the time I started showing up, they had set up a system where you could like choose. They just had a big machine. They had, they had a jukebox, basically. Basically a jukebox. Yeah, yeah a jukebox. Although yeah. it was like dinky and always had somebody there. Because, of course, they could, you could just stand there and listen to like, Basically any CD in the store, right. with like used head, nasty headphones that yeah. nobody wipes down. But anyway, um, yeah, I remember that. I remember going to Toys R Us and playing uh, Street Fighter Two when, <laughs> when they used to have those things out for for people to try out games. That's what you do when you have no money yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, so he so in that chapter, which chapter is it again? Uh, that's that's R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That's right. Mm -hmm. It's all making sense talking to you. It's all coming mm -hmm. together. Um, yeah, like he, and I, and correct, you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? But like, I think the point there was, you know, he's describing this very. Um, well, you, you had a common culture that right. evolved and that formed the basis of mutual respect among people of different races. Mm -hmm. And when you make it racialized and you say oh this is black music and you have to respect it because it's black music like that just well no why do i have to respect this you know what i'm saying like it becomes um uh, coerced respect rather than real respect that he says just comes from a shared culture and a lot of this book by the way is about how there's no there's no more shared um culture no more shared things so you can't have respect you can't have allegiance if, you, if there's nothing shared among the people yeah i mean Correct. <laughs> I have a quote highlighted, but it's not worth reading because uh, you basically just said it. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was interesting. Like, I am, I, I cannot really. Uh, uh, that is not my childhood growing up or my teenage years, like doing that sort of thing. So I can't necessarily. Well, but you can understand. I mean, but I can understand to... it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think this is an example of where like the synesthesia kind of works. Yes. Kind like if you can consider it that. Um, yep. But yeah. Yeah, that was very definitely synesthetic for me. Yeah. I know you're just sitting there with your with your terrible whatever kind of music. What do you listen to? Prog rock, The Smiths. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like Britpop 
is was what I grew up with. But mm -hmm. then, of course, the immediate predecessor to Britpop was like the uh, new wave stuff, including the Smiths and all that. But yeah. so that all that all kind of comes together, right? That's like from eighty to two thousand, basically. This is like, like you biting into a Madeline. It's all flooding. Back. <laughs> um, yeah. So he he. I, I think that I'm trying to think. I think that is the most current thing chapter in the entire book because he's talking about racial uh, issues yeah well yes um i would say there's a strong tie between that chapter and the previous one which is obligation mm -hmm. which again this is one where i'm not sure oh that's true yeah. obligation works as like the thing but there's there's he's definitely telling there's definitely a moral that he's um telling here um in, in this little sermon but i'm not sure it's about obligation but anyhow it's about the the disco bonfire in Chicago in the seventies. That's was news to me, but yeah. Oh yeah. This is a famous thing. Um, okay. Yeah. This, this radio, the shock jock said, Hey, you know, he was <clears throat> working at a, at a rock station that got switched to disco and he wasn't going to play disco because of course disco sucks. And so he, um, I, I guess he was doing the halftime show. Is there a halftime at a baseball game? No, <laughs> he was doing a show at <laughs> like a White Sox game. Yeah, okay. something. And he said, bring your <laughs> disco. <laughs> yeah, bring disco records. And we're going to put them in a pile and we're going to burn them. And that's what people did. But it got out of hand and it became a riot. Um, and again, the, 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 the culture war talking point from this chapter is there was a guy. So people just kind of saw this as a, a riot, right? And it's always like a funny thing, right? Like this this uh, anti-disco rock rebellion against, you know, this awful music turns into a riot. It got out of hand um, because there wasn't enough security. Security didn't expect the kind of reaction that they were going to get and the police took a long time to get there, et cetera, et cetera. It was a pitch invasion, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he says, apparently there was, there's a documentary made about this and there's a guy who is, who subsequently became um, an important music producer in Chicago, who um, had been a usher when this happened. He's a black guy. And he basically says that um, he noticed that the preponderance of the music being brought, being you know, records being brought to be burned were black um, artists. And in particular stuff that wasn't even disco. It was like Marvin Gaye and stuff. And so from this, we we're led to believe from this lived experience. This is this is basically one guy saying this. There's no evidence of this. This is just an anecdote. But this guy's lived experience. From from that, we have to now see that this through a racial lens that this was basically a white supremacist bonfire that was a reaction to white people losing their status in music versus blah blah blah. I don't know. Uh, and he's like. Um, yeah, let me read you a quote from this. He says, modernity and postmodernity have pushed to extremes, each breaking a binary. And by the way, breaking a binary is a big thing here. Yes. Which we should talk about. Um, this binary has two sides, which are both necessary for gender interpretation. The modern seeks to shut down the side of subjectivity. The postmodern seeks to shut down the side of objectivity. And then this is where obligation comes in. Each obliges interpreters to adhere to their side exclusively whereas genuine interpretation obliges us to take heed of both sides. Uh, genuine interpretation is a relation of mutual obligation. The interpreter is obliged to approximate as best as possible an objective interpretation of events while simultaneously being obliged 
to be as attentive as possible to subjective perspectives. And so he's basically saying, look, you can't do it either way. There, there's no view from nowhere. Uh, but also you can't take um, subjective experience as like the defining thing that you have you're obligated to accept. There, there's like a happy medium where you try to get to objective truth being aware of subjective experience, right? Um, but he talks, but the, put that, he puts that all in terms of obligation. And I'm not sure if it's, but. Yeah, I mean, there are a few chapters like this mm -hmm. where um, like the metaphor or the synesthesia or whatever, whatever is being used, it's kind of stretched to a breaking point. Yeah. And um, my eyes kind of like get a little glazed over. I'm like, I guess that makes like, yes, <laughs> it's all, it's asking for, um, uh, oh God, what is the phrase? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's asking for good faith, right? It's yeah. like, we're, you know, like you're not arguing about which soccer team is the best or, or something petty like that, like to, in order to live, in order to have a society, right? You're going to be disagreement. Like, how do you settle that? And if it's just like, well, I say this and that's the truth. No, no, I say this. Like you're, you're kind of done for like you're toast. Right. It's basically like who has the biggest stick is going right. to win. Um, so you need to both adhere to at least some modicum of, um, yeah, you're yeah. both, you're both seeking the, uh, objective truth, but with an understanding that there's subjective truths yeah. as well. And you have to be respectful of those. Yeah. And you have to argue in good faith or in good least, faith. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, um, you know, it's like the very simple version of like the whole chapter basically, but I'm not sure. Like, is that, I guess you both have an obligation to argue in good faith. I guess so. But why then, is it an obligation? Like I, as opposed to a duty or, 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 or an allegiance to each other. Therefore you argue in good faith. So I mean, I don't know. No, or, or just from a utilitarian perspective, like it just gets you the best outcomes. Right. Sure. I guess maybe because if you have a big stick, that gets the best outcome, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, well, it could be because sometimes arguing in bad faith definitely gets you a better outcome. Right. Yeah. Just not if everyone does it. Um, but, uh, you know, he is trying to not, I think he's not. My point is yeah. it could fit under respect. It could fit under. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Honor. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a few of those. Um, in fact, most of them, I think you could almost swap things out because. Right. And again, could be me being stupid, not smart. He no, doesn't define the concepts. He doesn't do the thing where it's like Webster's no. dictionary defines duty as and like, you yeah. know, does the thing, which I know no one really does anymore. But um, he doesn't even make an, he doesn't really make an attempt to do anything like that, right? He doesn't, I'm not saying you have to have a dictionary, but here's what some noted philosopher has to say about it. He doesn't really do that for, for anything. No, that's fine. Like he's kind of giving his own, I would call idiosyncratic take on all this stuff. And that's, mm -hmm. that's cool. But at certain points, um, and some chapters are, uh, they're more like this, <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Like the very first chapter about mothers and stuff, it's very, you, you can follow it pretty well. It's, it's, it's simple for, even for Stably to follow, <laughs> but then this chapter and a few others, they get very, um, you get very like philosophical and very, not jargon filled, but, hard yeah like above like they, an eighth grade reading level. they need to be parsed what he said yeah yes sure yeah and uh and again maybe that's my fault but um you know that's just the way he, he writes yeah. so be be aware 
uh what else do you want to talk about uh because we can i mean I, we said we weren't going to go through each of these uh, <laughs> no we're not, we're not we're jumping around um i don't know um i so i mean how did you ultimately feel about the book would you recommend uh, this would i recommend it i mean uh, i think it's worth if you can dip into like one or two of the essays first yeah then I would recommend, if, and if you like it, then I would recommend picking up the whole thing. I don't, I don't think you really need to read it in chronal in, in the order in which he places it. This it, it helps a little bit, yeah. Um, but um, especially with the first few chapters. But yeah, I, I think if you're into this sort of thing, then yes. I don't know. If this is a book for. Um, this is not a book you put in the hot new. Um, <laughs> Nonfiction section at a Barnes and Noble, right? Yeah. Uh, it is not like a, the latest Chuck Klosterman essay collection. It's not. It's not that, right? Um, and it's, but it's also not. It, it, it's not like a book from a religious publisher, either. Um, but, it's, but it's definitely very like. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. There's the, very Catholic. The, yeah, the undertone or whatever it is. Yeah, the undertone. Yes, the, it's largely unstated. But you know, I think you can pick up what he's uh, what he's doing. So I, I, you know, I'm not sure. Like, if you're if you want to sit down and like, at least it's interesting. I will give it that. Like, so here's a, he's a right winger, in a way, in a lot of ways, right? And he's very religious. But it's not. I don't think you can sit down and like plot out what he's going to say. You know, on your own. In a lot of books, I think you could totally do that. Um, you could say like, oh, here are the chapters. Like, I know exactly what he's going to say and how he's going to say it and like where the Churchill quote is coming in, <laughs> right? Where, <laughs> where the, uh, uh, you know, the Pothorus quote is going, the elder. Uh, it, it, at least he doesn't do that. So it's, it's kind of out of left field uh, for me. So I, it, it's making me like hesitant to say like, oh, I recommend this book to like everybody. I think you have to be in a certain mood and willing to vibe with what he's doing yeah he kind of goes all over the place on the other hand maybe if you get it and you just like read an essay and they're very short also like it's not it's not like they're not terribly long they don't really overstay their welcome just sit on your chesterton and just like read the thing and like think about it for a week if you want to and then read the next one uh i don't think you have to consume the whole thing in one sitting yeah what so, I would say is kind of like if you want to see the happy face of <laughs> here we go <laughs> of of trad yeah you, you know seriously if you want to see the best possible if you want to see like trad Catholicism uh, trad uh, integralism or whatever in its kindest light this is your book right like he cites um, Saurabh Amari and Deneen and like Ben Sixsmith. Right, these people all make cameos in here, like just very lightly, just just a little quote, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, but obviously, th that stuff is very uh, in your face, right? Sure, but he also cites like people I've never heard of. He cites totally, like, totally. modern philosophers and and yeah, like the boogeymen of the right also appear here, and they appear way more frequently than. Um, yeah, like again, you would think that like, oh, he's gonna. This is gonna be like a Patrick Deneen, Amari type of love in, and I think he cites each one once or twice, maybe. Yeah, 
but it, um, but my point is that if you want to see that stuff not not being ridiculous um or over the top but just but just you know being very um sincere since you know th th this is it right this book is just maybe that's maybe that's what this book is very sincere yes and it's also not which so. is a total turn off <laughs> it's the opposite <laughs> of uh, and it's the opposite of vulgar yeah uh, which is uh, yes. another, another thing that turns you on i believe yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um yeah so it's a very yes it's very sincere it's incredibly urbane and like sophisticated and unvulgar i know there's a word for that uh i just don't know what it is um now if that turns you off then yeah stay away from it because that's it's not gonna be a turn off but it might not turn you on right you might just be like <laughs> keep going jerry no it, i mean <laughs> I, i'm just telling listeners right what to expect right like sure. it, it feels like going to church uh, i've never been so okay i, I don't know <laughs> um yeah it depends yeah, on the if, church i guess but yeah yeah if, if that's your take then yes i mean it's definitely he's definitely making he, like he's trying to educate you yes so these like are, these are sermons these are sermons these are yeah these have a point and uh if you're like completely gonna just start squirming right away then like yeah don't 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 even bother don't pick it up well or maybe get through it and then you'll come out a better <laughs> well person. yeah yeah if you're that type of person then sure um but i even i wasn't like squirming it's just like i'm no, just gonna no. watch, watch over me that they're they're short he is a good writer i think uh you know he's trying for something yeah it's not like avant-garde like the pages are not blank right it's not written backwards uh, he's not <laughs> doing anything crazy like that but he is trying to do something a little different than he is trying to be literary right he, he yeah. is trying to and I, I did like his chapter has a little screed about language um and you know uh talking about poetry how poetry is all about obedience to forms right um and how you get greatness um by restricting your freedom uh blah 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 right um and that we you know we've become our you know our language has become all about efficiency which is a different kind of it's funny it's like um it, it gets to his last big his his major last point which we should talk about which is the distinction between uh obedience and submission mm -hmm. right so obedience means you willingly um subvert your will right you, you willingly say no I'm, I'm gonna do this thing because this is what it has to be done this is the right thing to do yeah um whereas submission is you just give up and you just you're forced. forced yeah yeah you, yeah, you, you, yeah you, you you're being forced and you just give up resistance um and and so he basically talks about the difference between something like poetry which is uh obedience to form uh um you know relative to submission to our um you know efficient functional you know uh corporate speak <clears throat> have you noticed this this is something I, I um it's a podcast that i enjoy called um oh god what's it called um I totally forget what it's called. It's with the woman who is who I like a lot, who's the editor of the Free Beacon. Oh, uh, is it the media? A media? The one? media one, yeah. Uh, Ink State Wretches is what it's oh, called. Oh, right, yeah. Anyhow, something that they pointed out, um, it, just in passing, they said, "Have you noticed people are now saying welcome in when you go into a store, or you or you go to a restaurant, or any interface with service? People will say, hey, welcome in,' which is do they? Do they? So now that they've said it, I hear this everywhere. 
<laughs> okay. No longer is it welcome. It's now welcome in. It's in the uh, it's in the zeitgeist. It's in the zeitgeist. It's amazing. Anyhow, um, <laughs> okay. This has nothing to do with anything. I just had to mention. It. Uh, yeah, I forget what I was saying. But basically, yes, uh, obedience versus submission. <laughs> yes, and that, that's an, another interesting chapter where he tries the uh, like the dialectic, right? Um, so, he, as you said, um, he does this a lot, where he. But not in a like a gotcha way. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I remember what I was going to say, and I'll just say it quickly. <laughs> there you go. Sorry. Uh, which is, um, he's definitely fighting against that impulse in his language, right? He is trying to do something that's more literary in a traditional sense, um, rather than efficient. Uh, I think, as you say, in order to achieve this anesthesia or whatever. Um, I'm not sure it always succeeds. Uh, you know, he is a good writer, better than me probably. Um, but I'm not sure it works. Like there's a lot of analogy and simile, like probably too much. And it could, because a lot of these similes are dubious, right? Like they don't, uh, they don't work. Um, so that's a minor thing, but like, he's trying, you know, he's doing something different, which is, which you have to respect. Right. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Okay. Good point. <laughs> you back to you. You were going to talk about no, no, no. Uh, uh, just, this is the very last chapter, and it, like the uh, the conceit is, it's it's London, it's the, it's Canary Wharf, which is like the second. It's like it's a it's a huge like financial high rise district now, um, but it has like an unseemly reputation going back you know hundreds of years. It's kind of this marshy place where like street urchins would like shove you and steal your rum, <laughs> basically. And I think it's said in the 80s, like what he's talking about, um, like travelers show up and take over this part that's not been uh, uh, built out yet. And they start kind of spreading out through what is essentially like their version of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's gypsies, although it's, it's unclear like where they, who they are, where they come from. They might be like the local Irish travelers or... or or no, he he points out they're like they're, they're not gypsies actually. They're not no right. They're yeah. like they're they're like people who like dropped out of society, right? And they're and the kids of those people. So they're like basically feral, right? Uh, yeah, you're right. They're not gypsies. Um, so they're like the kind of the losers and dropouts of society. They're all like on drugs, basically, just traveling around. They're hippies, right? They're like hippies who never grew up. Yeah, they move in next to Wall Street. <laughs> And the kids just go into Wall Street, English Wall Street, and like just harass and terrify all the all the businessmen, yeah. and like knock them down and break their glasses and like steal their lunch money or something. Yeah, and um, you know, so they're coming in and they have like forget like obedience. They like they have no authority. They're like no law. They're completely feral animals, essentially. So like the businessmen see these as like invading barbarians mm -hmm. and from the street urchins point of view, like the kids, he thinks that what they're seeing is total sellouts to the man, right? These businessmen, they're like completely obedient. They just follow orders. It's the man, man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as in most other sections of the book, he's doing this dialectic, right? It's like, you know, like anarchy on this side and you have order on this side. But really, like they both misunderstand each other. Right. And because of the way modern society is, like obviously these street kids, they like they're completely bereft, right? They don't 
Well, and they both misunderstand not just each other, but they both misunderstand the nature of authority. Yes, exactly. So for the street kids, authority to them is like, again, they've grown up basically homeless. So authority is like... And by the way, can I just point out, these these kids are not like, not hippie dropouts. They're kids of hippie dropouts. And so the hippie dropouts at least at some point maybe had a shred of idealism. These kids were just, just were born into a hellscape, right? Um, Right. So yeah, what they grew up with is robbing raping stealing like if you see an adult he's probably yeah. gonna like beat you and, up steal from you rape you so and the formative memories is like police breaking up their camps breaking sure. into their homes beating their parents and beating them right yeah. like yeah. yeah so any any adult authority figure is either like a cop who's like beating the crap out of your family or is like another adult in your camp who is probably going to do the same thing but right. anyway so like that's their that's their that's their vision of what authority is right um, but they misunderstand. That's not really authority. That's just like what force. That's violence. There is no authority in in the camps, right? And that's why they have to revert to because because the parents decided like we don't want that anymore. We're like hippie anarchists, whatever they are. Um, so complete lack of authority makes them view actual authority with suspicion. But like you don't actually know what that even is, right? You, right? You've never experienced it. And from the other side, these businessmen, they're, they also like don't obey authority, right? They are like forced to submit <laughs> through like global capitalism and bureaucracy and a bunch of other kind of impersonal forces mm-hmm. that also affect them. And I mean, they get a good deal out of it, right? They, they're wealthy, they make good money, they're successful, they're, they're powerful, you know, a lot of them. But it's not really that they, they're not obeying. They're, there's no authority uh, that they look up to. It is just like you follow the rules or like bad things happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's a quote. Both authority and obedience have receded, replaced by violent coercion on the one hand and unconscious sublimation on the other. That's the thing is that it's, it's unconscious, right? This submission is unconscious. It's very, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, in a way, very rebel cell, right? So, like you pursue status and pursue, grat- pursue gratification of desire. Why? Well, because that just seems like what how you get happy, but you're never happy, and you're on this treadmill, and you're on this treadmill because you're uh, trying to keep up with the Joneses, and this is all kind of just unconscious. And you're happy, and there's no meaning, right? And 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 but you're doing it, and yeah, yeah, and like there is that at least in the businessman side, like you said, there is no conscious decision right because i think that's what he's trying to point out is like again it's it's it, there's it, everything is like a thesis and an antithesis but at a certain level like in order to like give into authority in order to recognize authority like you have to recognize it right you can't just kind of float around saying like i'm just doing the thing because i'm doing the thing because that's not really authority that's just like you're just kind of going with the flow you're just being told what to do without even thinking about without it. even thinking about it yeah. yeah so i mean that was interesting like the, i think the book ended like on an well, interesting note but here's the thing right so so he brings up where um you know how does uh authority get its legitimacy well and then he gets a little conservative and well, like and like out of like the deep dark woods at the beginning of time which is why i can't like buy into what he's selling necessarily yeah <laughs> Um, but it's still interesting. <laughs> and so what, what is his answer to that, right? Because it seems super woolly to me, right? It just seems to, to me that he, and, and, and you see this peek through uh, throughout the other chapters, although I think it really comes through here. 
which is um it's just a feel right it, it just is right it's uh, like he talks about like the no, the last note of beethoven's fifth symphony it's like yeah once you hear it you can't imagine it being any different correct and yeah. that's what authority is and like again this is like synesthesia this is his attempt yeah and it's like i guess uh, yeah that's... i mean you, you but i think it you know is it anything more than like charisma and um just like doing what people have always done because it's very hard for figures of authority let's just call them that leaders right you have to exude authority either you personally or your office you know like oh we don't salute the man we salute the office or the rank or whatever and it's like i guess that's a thing it's but you you often get that in the military right and he talks about like i think the difference between normal life in the military but like that's a military thing where like if you have to you also have to do it if you don't like you're peeling potatoes or whatever uh and he never gets into like where does it come from this thing called authority like how do you yeah. wield it you, yeah read you one more quote uh ceaseless argumentation about what conditions make authority legitimate will need to stop going about the task in this way already renders it impossible uh, I guess asking questions about it, right? Uh, uh, for what is required is a presumption of legitimacy as something self-evident. Uh, what is needed is a profound reorientation and undoing somehow of the refractions of enlightenment currents of thought into a newly orchestrated whole. Like this is the the um, not just Deneen, but what's his name? What's the uh, the Harvard guy? Vermeule. This is the Vermeule peeking sure. through. Like, yeah. Yeah, the the, uh, the happy yeah, this, face slips off a little bit. Here. This is where the Uber Pope comes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, but of course, like I, I mean, that's the ultimate argument with someone. Yeah. This is a conservative. You can't argue. A, yeah. Like an actual conservative yeah. in, in a lot of ways, or at least a traditionalist. Yeah. Let's, let's 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 not say a conservative, right? Yeah, traditionalist. Yeah. Because he's listening to like house music and whatever he's doing. Well, right? because conservatism is relative, right? What are you trying to conserve? <laughs> to the 90s. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. He's a traditionalist. Well, let's say he's a traditionalist. It, it, it's um, like when you get to the nitty gritty, it's like it becomes obvious that, at least to me, it's incomm incommensurate with like a liberal way of life. Yeah. Because it, it's like the Monty Python sketch, right? It's like, wh where does your authority come from? Oh, because a lady gave you a sword? <laughs> like that's that's like that's your basis for government <laughs> right yeah. so like your basis for authority is what is it a wet just... tart what did he say yes oh, wet. <laughs> something like that it. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i mean like i'm not gonna the worst thing in the world is listening to other people do monty python uh, <laughs> sketches so i'm not gonna go there but you know it makes an like that's an interesting point like where does your authority come from because are you just talking about like the office like i'm the boss the authority of the boss are you talking about like running a country a society is it is it really just like we can't be vibes like how do you how do you put someone in charge because he has authority it, it, like you just need a king essentially right so the authority comes from the monarchy because it's just kind of around for a long time and you can't think of anything better a king or a ceo a ceo <laughs> why not both <laughs> uh anyway like i'm bumbling around but like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know at, at a certain level like these two these two philosophies like crash into each other and like that's what you believe and this is what i believe and like i don't see how you yeah 
you know, you can't make them work. Um, yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not going to do the Monty Python sketch, but yeah, it's like you said, uh, maybe the mask is kind of slipping a little bit here where it is it, very blunt. It's kind of like, you know it when you see it. Right. Um, sounds a little dangerous, but <laughs> as he would point out, like, well, what we have now is like, there's no authority actually at all. Like you think that you're free, but you are just being forced to submit. Like you're, you're submitting right now, whether you like it or not. Um, so are you actually free? Like, can you say no to these things? And, and get away with it and like live a good life. I, mean, I guess he would say like, no, you can't. Um, so like, where is, where is your freedom? Let's tie it all back together again, back right. to the title. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I'm sad we didn't get to talk about Nailsguard and uh, well back. Maybe we'll talk about it offline because we do have to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if if you've listened to us this far and what we've been describing sounds interesting, then yeah, I would pick it up. But if it sounds, you know, like we do, <laughs> yeah, I think by this point, just us describing the book will let you, you know, let follow your heart. Follow uh, your heart. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all right, Stavley. Well, very good. Um, I, yeah, I had mixed feelings about this, but uh, having discussed it, I feel better about having read it. Uh, Me so too. Me yeah. Too. All right. Next time, my pick uh, by the people rebuilding liberty without permission by Charles Murray. Exciting. Very exciting. All right. I'm going to ask you all about why next time. All about why? Yeah. Uh, an X? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time, Sam. Okay. Bye. Bye.